Good evening. Welcome to the Hirschhorn Museum and Sculpture Garden. I am Elena Kalinowska, Director of Public Programs and Education, and it is my pleasure to welcome you today for an important discussion on the occasion of the opening of the first North American survey of Ai Weiwei, foremost figure to emerge from the rapidly expanding Chinese contemporary art scene. Ai Weiwei, according to what exhibition, has opened without the presence of Ai Weiwei, who has become increasingly known for his outspoken political activism, which takes numerous forms and resulted in his detention in 2011 for 81 days by Chinese authorities. He has not received his passport back and thus has not been able to travel to open this show. I have stated, I have experienced dramatic changes in my living and working conditions over the past few years. And this exhibition has been an opportunity to re-examine past work and communicate with audiences from afar. I see it as a stream of activities rather than a fixed entity. It is a part of continual process in self-expression. This engaging exhibition and Ai Weiwei, who is one of the most relevant international artists and the fighter for freedom of expression and the value of individual lives, lives provides a highly resonant context for the discussion to concentrate on questions of freedom and creativity in global terms, addressing the various conditions that, that lead great minds to bold actions. Throughout the ages, works of art, views and opinion voiced by artists have triggered political and social change. At times, they have shocked the general public, challenged the established order and prevailing cultural and political views and dogmas. Conservative rulers and governments in many countries have established censorship, jailed or exiled artists, or invented a variety of other means to prevent descending works of art from triggering a fundamental change of social views held by the population at large or challenging established political, social, and religious values. The fascists, dictatorships, and communist regimes throughout the world have strived to make sure that artists follow the official political, cultural, and social order or face the anger. Why such paranoia on the part of the government? The leaders understand well the basic human desire for freedom, and the public is generally quick to figure out the hidden or apparent message contained in art and interpret this challenge to the established order and call for others to join the artist in the quest for freedom. I'd like to acknowledge several individuals. I would like to extend my special thanks to Elizabeth Miller and Dan Salek, Hirschhorn Trustee, for their special support of this event. I also would like to acknowledge the individuals who have helped to shape public programs and films presented on the occasion of the exhibition, including Kerry Brower, Deputy Director and Chief Curator, for his support, 
Deborah Horowitz, Director of Public Programs, uh, sorry, Director of Publications. E extraordinary curatorial team, including especially Adam Budak, Kelly Gordon, and Mika Yoshitake. Kevin Hall of Programs and Sarah Gordon of Exhibitions have been superb. We also thank all of our members for their continued support of the Hirshhorn mission to bring art, artists, and audiences together for programs like these. I'm thrilled to see so many trustees, supporters, colleagues, and especially artists. Thank you for being here to support Ai Weiwei. Now, our guests. Moderator. Broadcast journalist Judy Woodruff has covered political and other news for more than three decades at CNN, NBC, and PBS. After returning to the News Hour in 2007, as a senior correspondent, she now regularly anchors the newly redesigned PBS News Hour. Panelists Zbigniew Brzezinski, a national security advisor to President Carter from 1977 to 1981 as well as one of the key architects of America's Cold War strategy. Brzezinski was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 1981 for the normalization of the U.S.-China relations and for his human rights contribution. A trustee for the Center of Strategic International Studies, his latest book is A Second Chance, Three Presidents, and the Crisis of American Superpower. Gayatri Chatravorki Spivak, a distinguished university professor and a founding member of the Institute of Comparative Literature and Society at Columbia University. <coughs> Dr. Spivak is a foremost theorist and critic of the 19th and 20th century literature. She deeply cares for humanity and supports those who fight for freedom. Her most recent publication include A Border Without World, Boardless World 2011 and General Strike 2012. Roger Borgel, Artistic Director of, Director of Busan Biennale 2012, which he renamed Garden of Learning. Borgel included Ai Weiwei's work in Fairy, Fairy Tale in 2007 in Documenta 12, one of the most important international exhibitions, for which he served as an artistic director. Borgel has written extensively on Ai Weiwei and his work. He is a founding director of the Johann Jacobs Museum in Zurich, a research and exhibition venue devoted to global trade routes that is due to open in 2013. Please join me in welcoming our distinguished panel. Thank you, Milena. I'm incredibly honored to be here. And before we go any further, I know there are some of you standing in the back. I see actually two empty seats on the front row if you want to be bold and come forward and have a comfortable seat. So uh, that's there as an option. I am incredibly honored to be here to join this panel of remarkable people, remarkable experts, to talk about a subject that's so important to everybody in this room, everyone in this country, and 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 we know everyone around the world. Uh, not only is it a treat for me to break away from coverage of the presidential campaign 24-7, uh, and by the way, please ignore it if I suddenly lapse into a question about a tax cut or the fiscal cliff. Uh, I'll try not to do that. Uh, but uh, sincerely, it is just, it's an honor and a thrill to be here with, with these individuals and to... Uh, 
to be talking about not only uh, this, the broad subject of artists and social change, but of course to be here uh, on the weekend of the opening of the Ai Weiwei <coughs> exhibition, which if you haven't been through it, it's extraordinary, uh, as I'm sure all of you know who have seen it. So what provokes this conversation is the exhibit, um, and we know it is his first major survey uh, exhibition in the United States. The fact that he can't be here himself, I think, underlines the value and the timeliness uh, of this conversation. Um, we are going to talk among ourselves. Uh, the, I'm going to pose questions, and we're all going to have a conversation for about 45 minutes or so. Then we're going to open it up to you in the audience. So be thinking about what questions you might want to pose uh, to the panelists. But I want to begin with Ogur Bergo because, Ogur, you just returned. You, two weeks ago, you were with uh, Ai Weiwei in Beijing. Tell us how he's doing, uh, what his life is like right now, how he feels about not being here. Hmm. <clears throat> I think he's doing fine. Um, <clears throat> he's working. I'm, I'm not so sure if he would have enjoyed, I mean, all the trouble around his personality. I think it's quite a tension for him uh, to be so much in demand and also to assume a certain ideological sanction. He's playing in the, for the Western media as a kind of voice of freedom or this kind of heroic freedom fighter because I think to a degree he also feels being functionalized by this kind of, of position. He also has a longing for being Did seen... Did you say functionized? Functionalized, yes. I mean, there's almost, I mean, every hour a microphone pushed to his mouth, and one of his big problems is that he cannot keep his mouth shut. <laughs> <laughs> and on the other hand, I mean, he enjoys working. I mean, after his arrest, he has become quite conscious of his family life and of having time to spend with his son. So this is also a kind of conscious endeavor that he spends every afternoon with his son, who is five years old, because he told me that he could be arrested any time. I mean, it's unpredictable. But the problem he has, I also told him that uh, if he's not going to be arrested, then his son is becoming the most spoiled child on the planet. <laughs> And I think that he is also quite excited uh, about the possibilities that the discussion about his, his work is, is going on and that it is also in a way taken away from him and his personality. Well, let me ask you before we broaden it out. If he were here, what do you think he would say in a few sentences? It's very big. The exhibition is it's varied and it's powerful. What would he say about it and about how it advances the message that he's constantly developing. I think, I mean, that's my personal opinion, that he is uh, kind of tired to, to having to come up with his own opinion about his work. And what he's also showing, I mean, when you are with him in front of journalists, and it's kind of embarrassing sometimes. I mean, for me as an artistic director, when you're also the host, a complete indifference towards journalists. He's also taking photographs of them, for example, all the time. And uh, giving those lazy, lazy answers, which are kind of stereotypical and infinitely predictable. So then tell us how you see, if, if not in his mind, how do you see the significance, the message, of, which is part of the ongoing effort on his part to say something about what's going on in China? 
I think, um, and this is again, I mean, my totally personal view, I mean, that, that he's only concerned with China and uh, that um, this creation of a, of a civil society within China is his, is his key aim and his major interest. I mean, he's terribly impatient about this kind of political evolution in China, which is maybe no evolution at all. There's something I would like to ask you, for example, because you have this historical perspective also, looking back at two or three decades into this relationship between China and the West. And his main ambition is also, I mean, to use the, the Internet, as everyone knows, as a tool of mobilization. So, Dr. Brzezinski, uh, if, 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 I mean, just that, that raises the question, the, the China of today that denied him the chance to be here, how much is that China different from the China of a few decades ago? I mean, he, part of his message is the f rapidly changing Chinese society. Well, the China that I first visited in 1978 to initiate the normalization process between the United States and China was a China almost unbelievably different from the China that we see today, outwardly at least. Hmm. And that's an important qualification, outwardly. It was a repressed, gray, uniform, totally controlled society, just recovering from decades of war with the Japanese, of civil war, of the great leap forward, mm. millions of casualties and all of these, cultural revolution. Today, China is, first of all, again, on the visible level, a fantastic accomplishment. Changed more in the course of these 30 years than any other society has ever been changed in the comparable time frame. And changed in, again, objectively, visibly, a successful way. Standard of living has risen, enormous new cities. Many of the infrastructural aspects of China are more advanced than currently in the United States. If you want to get a comparative measure of the dynamism of China and some of the stagnation in the United States, Go on the fast train between Beijing and Shanghai, and then take what we call a fast train, <laughs> namely <laughs> the Achella from Washington to New York. You're subjected to almost three hours of shaking like this. You can't write, it's impossible, and you always arrive late. So, on that sense, it's a tremendous change. And one of the reasons I'm here is that I believe that that change is important, should be encouraged. It's far from complete, but I do believe very strongly that it's essential in this century that America and China maintain a working partnership-like relationship, because otherwise the global condition will dramatically deteriorate. But also the reason I'm here is that Ai Weiwei symbolizes something else, the inner China the recovery of its identity, the growing self-confidence, the recognition of diversity, the reaction to shortcomings. It's very moving to see the exhibit 
and also to read his blog dealing with the Sichuan death of so many young people, who, which is very visibly symbolized by the book uh, knapsacks that the students carry yeah. here on the exhibit, powerful and moving. So I think we have to face the fact that we're dealing with a changing China, which is moving in a fashion that's impressive, and at the same time, an artistic personality, way I, 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 who today probably is one of the most creative, diverse, imaginative, creative artists in the world. And it's terribly important to remind ourselves that this is part of one world that we're living in. Hmm. And that relationship with China is not one of a choice, him versus them, them versus him, but it's a choice of working steadily at making what he symbolizes, but also what China accomplishes, part of the human adventure of the century, which is going to be very dangerous to the global condition, to the human condition. What is going to be very dangerous? I think the conflicts that we face, on the one hand, in a traditional geostrategic sense, in many parts of the world, and particularly Eurasia, could get out of hand. Then human calamities, and the last but not least, the challenge of climate. All of that means that this is a century in which humanity really has to cooperate, and art can unite more than divide. Gayatri, you've obviously studied artists. You, you teach about art, you write about art, and you thought a lot about social change. How does what Ai Weiwei has done and is doing right now in China, how does that fit into the broader, the sweep of artists and social change and bringing about change in their countries? I'm going to make an irrelevant joke before I answer your question. (laughs) I hope you don't mind. Which is that, you know, I'm a citizen of India. And what happens when China and India are brought up in this Asian century is tremendous nationalist competition. I don't believe either, I I mean, I just heard uh, Mr. Brzezinski say what he said about the United States and China, right? If there were an ordinary Chinese person and an ordinary, excuse me for saying this, uh, it is a joke, an ordinary Indian person sitting here, they would immediately get into a kind of tremendous nationalist competition. But Ai Weiwei's China is not that China. This is one of the first things that I would say, and I think in our current uh, global situation, especially we in Asia, the big ones, we really have to learn that. And it seems to me, you know, one of the... What do you mean by that, though, when you say it's not Ai Weiwei's China? What do you mean? Well, uh, one of the um, uh, people writing on Ai Weiwei, the, um, what's his name now, Dario, Dario Gamboni, he says something which really strikes me, that when the, when the dust settles and people start looking at this in terms of what happened in China over the 20th and the 21st century, they will say that Ai Weiwei, to an extent, transformed the great leap forward into a kind of reality, so that what was misdone in the Cultural Revolution, that is to say, to change... You know, he says about China what? 
that he says, I, I'm just quoting from memory in English translation, mm -hmm. he says that desire has stirred this ancient land again from being dead. And he says that for a very long, and so what is happening now is, and you will uh, correct me if I quote your friend wrong, but what is happening now is that social, many social ethical structures and uh, aesthetic forms which used to be expressed through traditional cultural forms have been for a hundred years destroyed. And what is left, he says, is a Marxist utopia. And the cruelty, and this I do quote, the cruelty of the, quote, class struggle, unquote. See, I'm a professor. So uh, the cruelty of the class struggle. So this idea that this can be changed by, the, by intervention into what you're calling the, really the absence of civil society on the ground, even as the trains are running on time, mm. I think that that's really where one looks as an Asian and as a person who otherwise would be inscribed as a competitor. We look at him with this kind of hope because it seems to me that there is something there. And, you know, somebody else has said that he's a combination of Marxist theory and the New York underground. I'm a New Yorker also, apart from being an Indian citizen. And it seems to me that that's a very excellent combination that works at undoing the sort of transformation of whatever the 19th century philosopher wrote into a blueprint for an Asian utopia. Mm. And I think that's, uh, that's how I would see the phenomenon. Ms. Big and Ogbear, do you want to comment on that? And I'm going to ask you, Gayatri, to adjust your scarf because it's coming, it's rubbing across the microphone and making it, I think, more difficult for people to see, understand. See, this is the difficulty of wearing a sari. I counsel you all, <laughs> if you're going to make a public presentation, don't wear a sari. <laughs> I wasn't planning to wear one. <laughs> one never knows. You were full of unexpected things when you were, in fact, in Washington. <laughs> There we go. I think this is okay or not? That's perfect. If out, I don't strangle myself. Like <laughs> but what do the two of you think about what she just said? I think it's an important question to ask what type of uh, artist Ai Weiwei is. Because it's also a question that, that pertains to, um, to notions of art that are different, of course, in the West than in China, for example, or, or in India, for, for that matter. So that's one thing. And he's quite unique, I mean, in the sense that he had this revelatory experience in the United States, so that it's fair to say that to a degree he is an American artist. He took important lessons from the uh, art ecology of the Reagan years, of the 80s, I mean, when it comes to those lavish displays, and also when it comes to... Um, <clears throat> his uh, appropriation of, of Duchamp. And yet, I mean, this exhibition also shows, I mean, the kind of environment he had to work with in the, in the 90s in Beijing, when it was about the body and the precariousness of the human existence. And you had all this whole tradition of those very fragile, lyrical performances and how this then fits or transforms into his way of, of dealing with objects is something this exhibition makes clear. 
But it's also underlying the fact, I think, that his work is not about object produ uh, production. And that also, to a degree, his work is not about uh, a certain focus on, on the ego and also not about conscious control of uh, what he's doing or aiming to do in terms of formal accomplishments. And that, that makes him different, I think, from almost any Western artist I, I know. So when he says, he's quoted as saying, he believes, that he, and I don't know how recently he said this, I assume in the last several years, he, he believes, he's all, he says, I've always believed it's essential for contemporary artists to question established assumptions and to challenge beliefs. And I guess my question is, 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 that, is that a belief that artists in repressive societies everywhere hold and do, must they have that view in order to, to have the kind of impact and to affect the change they want to affect? It's a yes and no answer, I think. From, uh, at, uh, from one angle, one would say, and I'm thinking of a very famous uh, book called Tell Me a Riddle by Tilly Olson. She comments on the fact that when you are struggling in what you're calling a repressed society, then, I mean, her parents were in the 1905 revolution in Russia, then, in fact, as you are struggling in that way, somehow all of these interests in art doing something for society perhaps is, much, is there. On the other hand, when this is achieved and everybody is pretty much settled into a, a comfortable existence, or at least one sector of society is settled into a comfortable existence, art just becomes investment. And really, it's not something that, or you know, part of institutional uh, teaching and so on and so forth. Somehow, so she says this is a riddle. That's one side. But on the other side, I will say that Ai Weiwei also, as you say, he learned from, from, uh, from the United States. He also uh, resuscitates something which you will find written on the wall, a quote from him, that I, I mustn't misquote him, uh, make the useful become not useful, okay, not useless. And then he goes on to say, the meaning is in the use. Mm -hmm. And I would like us to think for a minute of the wonderful, uh, wonderful expression in Martin Heidegger's essay, uh, The Origin of the Work of Art, very famous essay. I'm not a great admirer of Heidegger in every respect, but this one is a, a very strong piece where Heidegger says that, uh, and that's solid German classical philosophy, that is solid European tradition, where Heidegger says that uh, the, the work of art, uh, the, the real thing is ins Werkgesetzen, to set it, set it to work. And mm. what is set to work? What is set to work through the work of art is ways of thinking art, uh, uh, ways of thinking uh, the improvement of society, ways of thinking social justice, ways of thinking human rights, all the moral outrage that we uh, seem to feel. Uh, the, in the origin of the work of art, uh, Heidegger suggests that the work of art sets it to work. Mm. So that to an extent, uh, uh, even as Ai Weiwei certainly shows that in repressed societies um, art has a special role. I certainly see it in Kosovo, in the Balkans, art has a very special role. At the same time, it is also a recognized way of thinking art. I mean, 
it's Immanuel Kant. I'm sorry, I should really stop being pedantic like this. But I, I love this kind of European theory, what to do. But nonetheless, you know, that's what it is. It's, it's to set it to work, art yes. setting it to work. Mm -hmm. The meaning, the use is in the meaning, not in the usefulness that we normally recognize. Big, what are you thinking? I was thinking how to place all of this in a meaningful historical context. Mm -hmm. I think it's not accurate to describe China as a repressive society because it's a very diversified society. There are many levels of life in that society. There's also the official life, but there's also the unofficial society. China today is in this ambiguous phase of being a post-totalitarian society without having become the antithesis of a totalitarian society. And where that will end up, we do not yet know. And there are some dangers, because if it cracks up prematurely, it could become intensely nationalistic hmm. and find a new sense of very intolerant unity within that framework. But China was a totalitarian society. And totalitarianism was the first political system deliberately to use art as a political tool vis-à-vis -vis the masses. Sure, in imperial societies, royal societies, there were court artists, some of great accomplishment, but they served the patron, and society was dormant. Totalitarianism tried to change society, and in changing society, it also unintentionally awoke society to a new reality, namely the political dimension. And today we live in a world which, because of that in part, because also very much because of radio, television, internet, is now politically awakened. That society has its own aspirations and its own reactions. So a person like Ai Weiwei is on the one hand operating within a sphere of political tolerance with occasional manifestations of repression, but also in a society which can now react by its own taste, its own preference, its own identity, vis-à-vis -vis the rulers. And when you look at, at least when I look at Ai Weiwei's art, at his creations, I'm struck by the extent of his social consciousness, but also by his artistic imagination, and then when I look at his blogs and his willingness to really speak out passionately against some manifestations, which may not even involve much popular endorsement. For example, I read one blog in which he's really indignant at the mistreatment by the authorities of the Uyghurs. Hmm. Now, how many Uyghurs are there in China? And I wonder how many people in this room know how many Uyghurs there are in China, but there are not very many, less than 10 million. And yet, they are, in fact, the object of control and repression. So in that sense, I see Ai Weiwei as playing this kind of ambivalent role, which is part of the ambivalence of our current global condition. The world is far from being governed by perfect democracies. Ours, ours is not so well off either, in terms of what we expect of a democracy. And yet, at That's the same, kind of subversive for you to say that, yeah, isn't but, it? But we're no longer living in an age of direct collisions with totalitarian societies. 
Hitlerism was totalitarianism. Stalinism was totalitarianism. Maoism, for most its entire phase, was totalitarianism. China isn't. And we have to understand that in this context. Mm -hmm. And even avoid ourselves overly politicizing Ai Weiwei. He is an artist, I think, first of all. But he's an artist with a deep sense of justice, human justice, social justice. And it's this amalgam that makes him very special today. And, Augur, how much of that comes out? Because, yes, we see his art, but as Big just said, you also are able to read what he's written. Hmm. Does it, in, for an artist to have the kind of effect that he may be having or is having, does that artist also have to project verbally in writing? Uh, how much is that an essential piece of the artist projecting his or her uh, desire to affect social change. Am I supposed to answer this? Or any one of you. I was. You want me to say to something? You. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm always ready to say something, but you must respond to what I'm saying, okay? Okay, I will. You, I, you know, I think that the whole thing is what he's doing. It's not like he's doing, as you said, he's not focused on the product mm. eh? and the uh, the verbality i mean the going through the blog stuff well, and he gave so much time to it mm. that's really part of he's like a multimedia person it's not like the artist has to explain uh, what he's doing by writing etc but it seems to me this entire project his entire project which is really to change minds that's really what it is, because without changed minds, nothing permanent lasts. And in doing that, I mean, like taking those 1,001 uh, Chinese to Documenta 12, what was it about? It's an epistemological clash. clash. Believe me, there also there was something of the cultural revolution thing, sure. that you can do it by just taking mm -hmm. them, etc. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. so what? So it seems to me that it is uh, all of a piece uh, what he's doing, the writing, and all of the other things. One is not a product being explained by the writing. And one last thing I will say, to last for the moment, which uh, is that he is not a digital idealist. When he was in an interview situation, uh, he said that the thing that stands in the way of using the, using the internet for real communication was, and I quote, inequalities of knowledge and opportunities and too much information, <coughs> too much mm. information. So to an extent, what Milena was saying, that you need to prepare the subject of the digital universe that can use the digital not as poison but medicine. He's an example of that. And that's also a place where mind changing comes mm -hmm. in. Mm -hmm. So. Now, uh, I don't want to do Judy's work, but please do respond to this. I took your, I took your answer. She phrased the question better than I did. No, I agree. I agree. Um, <clears throat> I think what, what needs to be emphasized is really, I mean, this kind of artistic existence as a form of being and also as a model of a citizen. So this is also the reason why I think that many of those quotes or his, his quotes don't really work because they are more stand-ins of a discourse. 
I mean, it's not about him or his position, but it's, but it's a kind of investment in, in civil society. And I think that one of the, of the problems also of this decontextualization that has to do with the fetishization of Weiwei within the West has to do that, the, that you don't never get the responses. But what he's aiming at, also with this, with this Sichuan activism, I mean, when he started um, or when he <clears throat> became part of this group of activists who looked into what happened during the earthquake and what came up uh, about government corruption through those tofu architecture and all those symptoms of bad government was not, a, was not about his, his ego or his voice or about a, a particular quality of his utterances, but it was about pushing um, the network or making this, this, this organism, which a so civil society is, also in its unpredictability, make it work. It's a big pickup on, because I, I, I do want to broaden, I want to talk about him and China, but I also want to broaden this out. I mean, you know, so much, you know so much about the whole world, but in terms of the former Soviet Union, Eastern Europe, I mean, are there examples of artists who made a difference? I mean, I, wanted, I want people to also think about the tradition that, that Ai Weiwei is in. I mean, who hmm. do you think well, of? Well, it doesn't quite fit, so to speak, exactitude of... Ai Weiwei's creativity, but I think it's an analogous case in some respects, and it has occurred to me as I was listening to this discussion. Solzhenitsyn mm. in the Soviet Union, his surfacing coincided with a phase which in some respects is analogous to what has been happening in China, but not entirely for a reason I'll just explain. It is somewhat analogous in the sense that it corresponded to the decline of the ferocity, intensity, self-confidence of the system's imposition of domination over society was changing. China went through that too. But the system was itself losing self-confidence and didn't have any other alternative. And at that moment, Solzhenitsyn stepped forward and began to delegitimate the Soviet system by his historical recollections, written in a powerful literary fashion in a society which is very responsive to the lit written word. Ai Weiwei is to some extent in a society that's moved beyond the totalitarian phase, but hasn't yet redefined itself into something else, yeah. has some of the old ideological uh, remnants as the overall definition of that society, but unlike the Soviet Union in the corresponding phase of Solzhenitsyn, it is not stagnating, falling apart. It has found an alternative, rapid development, self-enrichment in a context which is far from being free but according to our standards, but which involves a lot of uplifting socially, a lot of new opportunities because of technology, and travel abroad and everything else. And in that sense, his role is potentially more threatening to the authorities than Solzhenitsyn. Mm -hmm. Solzhenitsyn was eventually put into exile. Yeah. Whereas Ai Weiwei, even if he were to put into exile, has been, in a sense, I find by his art, signaling the diversity and dynamism of a China 
which is in many respects worth watching, in some respects very admirable, and in any case, till now, successful. So an artist, does an artist, in whatever form, always have to stay in that country to remain relevant and powerful? I think Can most of them want to, the ones that end up in exile, mostly, end up in that fashion because they were exiled. So Zhenitsyn didn't want to be exiled. Mm -hmm. He preferred to be imprisoned. Mm -hmm. My sense of Ai Weiwei is that he spams China and the West. He spent years in America. I'm sure that had some impact on him. Probably not all of it necessarily favorable, but an impact nonetheless, and has colored his imagination and has, I think, captivated his creativity. And this is why I find him absolutely fascinating from my own perspective. Gayatri and Ogre, are there other artists you can think of who Ai Weiwei is in the tradition of, whether in Europe I think Solzhenitsyn was an excellent example, yeah. but my feeling about this, and maybe Roga, you will uh, think differently about this, my feeling is that it's not his art, so to speak, that is so uh, impressive. It is almost, and this being uh, skeptical about being functionalized at the crazy side, the big side, that's, I mean, he's just a huge phenomenon, yeah. 70,000 uh, photographs in the archives, a thousand and one people. Look at the exhibition here. Mm. And it seems to me that it's almost, it is needed uh, now because art itself is the public for art, if you really think about it. Art as art, I mean, uh, art appreciation in the way in which it is taught, etc. You know, that is not a huge audience. I'm sorry. It's an art is not self expression as we used to think. And this is the functionalization to an extent I think he fights. So it seems to me that that phenomenon of uh, the somewhat crazy guy, a huge phenomenon with uh, all of this, uh, the causes coming in, trying to teach uh, the person viewing something, mm -hmm. a lot of people together. I think it's that, uh, it's that kind of thing in a very different way. So it's really almost... A political theater or ethical theater, you know, the person I think of has nothing to do with the production of art. It's Gandhi. He also had, hmm. he, I mean, you know, he takes off his suit, British educated barrister, puts on his little loincloth, embarrasses the hell out of the, uh, out of, uh, the British royalty by turning up uh, almost bare-bodied and showing his thin legs uh, in the Buckingham Palace. Yeah. That's a kind of political, uh, ethical theater where the person is part of the art. So that the blogging is part of the art and the person here is part of the art. It's not like art having an effect. You know what I mean? That's, that's my, it's, it's, it's not path. a straight line. It's a whole package and move your scarf again. Remove my scarf. The Maybe I should just take off my sorry. Push it away from your microphone. <laughs> Accuse me. You'll of... be like Andy. <laughs> <laughs> that's, the, that's the only. He, that's the only way. See, here's a real statement. That's the only way in which I would resemble one last character of Gandhi. But hey, thank you. Yes. Okay. All right. It, it, so is there, are there others in that tradition, or is Ai Weiwei unique in what he presents, this project that Gayatri was just describing? 
I think it's fair to say that he's quite unique. I mean, of course, we know also about the, the, the whole history of uh, <clears throat> political dissidents in Eastern Europe, Havel and people like that. Yes. I think that Solzhenitsyn is a good example also because he draws heavily on the, the country's cultural resources. I mean, the same way Ai Weiwei is doing. And this is also why it would be deadly for him to be cut off from those roots and why he wants to stay at all costs uh, within, within China and change the country uh, for, for the better. I mean, this has also to do with what you said about the historical perspective, because it's a country that is characterized by a certain, by, by a kind of historical amnesia. And there's no proper way to reach back to the past. I mean, there is a competition going on, also between those newly emerging middle classes and their notion of, uh, of Chinese history, which ties in with this kind of Chinese nationalism. I mean, we can, we can expect where he is uh, um, providing an alternative view of, uh, of historical China that has more to do with the history of entanglement, for example. I mean, this is very important in his art that you have no essential notion of Chineseness, but again, uh, an idea of entanglement and of the fragment. And <clears throat> third, I would defend the object, I think. Um, it's fair to say that it is all one, but this is also, I think this, this impression is also created by this kind of neurotic condition. Mm. He, he, is, he has not chosen, but he has been thrown into. But, um, but there is something to say about the object. Because the object allows us as viewers, I mean, to come up with a reading that may extend also the kind of context uh, a person like Ai Weiwei has imagined. So this is important as a kind of seed that carries, I mean, this evolutionary principle further. I'm going to jump around and ask two other questions, and then I'm going to come to the audience. But as big as people, as policymakers are sitting in rooms and thinking about changes they need to make or uh, decisions they have to take, and how often, whether you're in the White House or the National Security Council at the State Department or... Uh, or the United Nations do do what artists have done come into the discussion ever? Not never. <laughs> Not never, but occasionally and rarely. But you used one example, which actually is part of the answer. You mentioned Havel. Havel did. Yes. Why did he? Because he was the epitome of a romantic, uh, unorthodox intellectual uh, in a society which was part of the Western culture and which was experiencing the complete disintegration and discrediting of a corrupt communist regime. And in that sense, the political drama of which he was the architect and the leader and being a dramatist himself, reflected the coming to power of people who had romantic aspirations about society, democracy, and freedom, many of which aspirations have been disappointed in subsequent years. But to us, and I was then in the White House, he spoke volumes 
because he epitomized in a personal sense the values that we were aspiring towards and mm. hoping to protect and universalize. I sort of asked myself, who does Ai Weiwei really speak to in China in that context? Because we knew who Havel was talking to. He was talking to people who yearned for something better than they experienced over the last 30 years or so. I don't know the answer to my own question. Who does he speak to? I sort of suspect, now in a sociological fashion, that he doesn't speak to the new military elite. And there is a military elite in China. I don't think he probably speaks too much to the party bureaucracy. But the word party no longer signifies very much because it's not the communist party bureaucracy. It's a party bureaucracy which inherited power from the Communist Party and is a ruling bureaucracy with thinly veiled privileges. Does he appeal to the middle class? I think a lot of the middle class is let's enrich ourselves, which is not incidentally irrelevant to Chinese culture. Chinese culture is very trade-oriented and money-making. So let's enrich ourselves. Maybe to the young people, I suspect, in the cities, the sort of people who are beginning to be educated in terms of universal outreach and who travel. But not then to the rest of society, which are the peasantry. So he, in a way, also epitomizes by his courage and creativity the limits of democratic expectations that one should entertain today in dealing with China. And I don't think it is wise for us in that context of ours today in the White House to be engaging in constant preaching to them mm. about how they have to improve their society. Because first of all, ours, we realize now, is far from perfect. And two, they still have a long way to go. And if they get derailed too soon, the alternatives could be quite unpleasant. And I return to the one word I used before, rampant nationalism. Mm -hmm. I hear you. Does either one of you want to comment on that? And then I want to change. I have a different question I want to ask. Gayatri, did you? I, I agree with what you said, the, uh, that the other way is this kind of rampant nationalism that's not going to be... How's my mic doing? It's fine? Okay. The, uh, you know, uh, I completely agree with that. And I think a way, however, of taking his effectiveness away would have been what... Uh, uh, Marcuse and Robert Paul Wolf in the 60s called repressive tolerance. Mm -hmm. I think to an extent that would have been in a so-called uh, democratic society, that is to say where opposition is turned into an alternative and then put within quotes and then people buy uh, the stuff for investment, he would have been uh, uh, completely uh, neutralized. So as to how we are going to think about that, and one thing about China, I was in Nigeria on October 2, which is their Independence Day, and, you know, there was, I was asked to speak. And I said, look, you're not 51 years old. Nigeria is not 51 years old. It's 51 years of independence. On the other hand, if you just go back to traditional, we know what happens, Haram. On the other hand, you have to think the old in a new way and the new in an old way. And as I was looking at uh, Ai Weiwei's stuff, particularly because we were going to have this conversation, I thought that in some ways, really, uh, Ai Weiwei, whom I see as this, you know, big phenomenon, he's really perhaps doing that so that his China 
is not, not the China about which the ex-totalitarians would become, uh, would become rampant nationalists. Mm -hmm. I don't want to go any further, but mm -hmm. I just wanted to get this said in response uh, to what your wisdom. Mm -hmm. Just a different, one different question I want to ask, and then to, to the audience. But Gayatri, in the, in, and you, I want you all to comment on this. On those countries, not where it's not so much the government that's repress, repressive. And I heard the distinction you were making that China, today's China is not necessarily repressive. But just let me say this. Um, in a country where religion is the powerful force that it is in, in Muslim countries and in other parts of the world, the role of the artist, is it different? The artist who wants to affect change, who wants to speak, to power, who wants to speak up for the little people who can't be heard or who can't even figure out if they have a voice. How is it different from in a society like China or the former Soviet Union or Eastern Europe where it was the government? Well, I think what you spoke of, you know, socialist realism, uh, that where this idea that uh, a 19th century philosopher, I call him Karl Marx, his wonderful way of thinking how to think one's way out of the bad side of capitalism and so on, it turned into a blueprint quickly because a regime change had to happen. You know, the Tsarist Russia or the China's incredible medieval stuff, the Qing Dynasty and so on. In those kinds of situation, situations, the idea of so-called Marxism becomes like a religious mobilization of art. So that to an extent, the it's not, one can't make, I mean, I come from a country which is also now very religiously focused, but I think to an extent to define why art remains within a kind of tight uh, religious uh, focusing, whether it be Marxist fundamentalism or these kinds of religious focusing, I think it's dangerous. I think to an extent that happens because of other kinds of external situations which mobilizes art in this way. If you go into the Metropolitan Museum's wonderful new acquisition of all of this South Asian, Southeast Asian, and West Asian, and also North African art, the first thing you see was this extraordinary use of lettering with no human figures, incredible 9th century, 8th century Islamic art. You wouldn't want to call it Islamic. It, it comes from that area. They were not the religious people, mm -hmm. but I don't think they were. I just did a, a thing on Burma, Burma in transition with the Rohingyas, ethnic Muslims are being tortured, etc. And what came to me was that I should make a, I should make a poster which there, there's, there are no figures, only calligraphy, only font. And later I realized it was because I come from an Islamic area. I'm not myself born a Muslim, but I come from an Islamic area of India. So it seems to me that this religious mobilization of art, it is not a phenomenon that can be tied to places saying these places have always been religious. Mm -hmm. and, uh, it's, I think it ha they have to be historically analyzed. Right. You can also think about the Cochrane and Mapplethorpe. I mean, you don't have to go to countries. You don't have to go to, uh, to, go to uh, yeah. the Middle East. Right. But, the, but the point is, I think it has also to do with the power 
China is. And this, this interest, I mean, you have in the West, I mean, when it comes to China, and I mean, our demand for a kind of enlightenment. And, uh, and Ai Weiwei also, I mean, he put himself in a, in a position where he works or functions quite effectively as a kind of go-between. And I think that this is also part of the, of the fascination. I mean, that he's not simply an artist who has to deal with his country or his culture or whatever that is, but that he has rather to deal with a, with a tension that is, on the one hand, a <coughs> cultural tension with a glorious history, but on the other hand, it's also a potential geostrategic conflict. And this is why it is in the headlines. Spig, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I'm sort of thinking about the experience of much of the world with religious uh, religious outbursts, very intense commitment connected with populist uh, political awakening. And we in the West have had religious wars for centuries. First of all, among Christians. Secondly, we have had collisions with the world of Islam. And what strikes me about the Chinese is how different the Buddhist attitude towards conviction or faith, and therefore some fashion of religion, is different. It's more passive. It's not proselytizing in mm -hmm. this coercive fashion that certainly the Christians and the Muslims have projected historically. So as the China of today sort of keeps evolving, I think we'll see increasingly in China the significance of its previous 6,000 years. You know, for much of the post-1949 era in China, dramatized by this big photograph of Mao Zedong over the Forbidden City entrance, history started in 1949. But history is now being recaptured and regained. It's not an accident that the Chinese, quote-unquote, People's Republic Communist State representatives abroad are busy establishing Confucius centers mm -hmm. all over the world. Confucius centers. Uh, you know, this conveys a kind of inner uh, and very different sense of one's relationship to reality than is inherent when we talk about Islam or Christianity. And I think that in itself will give China staying power to play a world role. And this is why I'll harken back to what I started at the very beginning. I'm particularly interested, as a person dealing with international affairs, in making whatever contribution I can to the cause of having America and China avoid repeating what otherwise seems like a regularly imperative historical compulsion, namely, when one major power sees another major power rising, they inevitably get into conflict. That's been the history of international affairs. I think we now have the opportunity and the challenge to avoid that, and in part we have an imperative command to avoid it, because we know that if we don't avoid it, the consequence will be disastrous for China, for America, but now in this century, because of the other things that mm -hmm. we talked about, for everybody. Fascinating. All right. There's so much to talk about. I could go on and on and on. But I want to give all of you a chance. And I think, do we have a microphone? We need some lights up in the <coughs> audience so we can see who's out there. We have a microphone we can bring you. So raise your hand. 
I'm going to ask you to stand up uh, or make yourself heard in some way. Yes. Thank you. Um, my question is uh, a sort of a general comment from the panel rega regarding the fact that Tibet was never mentioned at all. So there was a kind of issue of silence uh, from the panel. Uh, Buddhism was mentioned, but also uh, in relation to China's success at silencing the topic and debate and uh, the issue of logic uh, in discussing the situation inside Tibet. So the question is, why didn't they talk about Tibet? Is that the question? Yes, in, in relation to the general silence about Tibet. Who wants to tackle? Has Ai Weiwei done anything about Tibet? He has included uh, Taiwan on the Chinese map. Okay. Well. That's, that's a strongly held view of most Chinese. I think it? this is a very good question. And I would also like, I'm not going to answer it, but I would say that it was coming to my mind all the time. I'm very involved in the Himalayan studies. But I would also, if I meet, if I have the good fortune of meeting Ai Weiwei, I go to China all the time, I would ask him also to think about Africa and China. Africa and China in Africa, what he would think. Because hmm. that really does have a lot to do with what China is today. Sure. So you mean all the aid that China is giving? Well, aid, aid, is, aid is not what we are talking well, about. Well, that's what they... Well, uh, let's not get, go there now. Because this is just simply a question that Spivak will ask Ai Weiwei if she has the good fortune of ever encountering him. That's all I wanted to say. No, it's more raw materials against highways. They're entering the retail trade now, so it's a... Okay. Um, my name's Enlai. Uh, thank you very much for your time, and thank you, Hirschhorn, for putting together a very relevant uh, ex exhibition and, and the time associated with this. Um, I guess growing up as a... Chinese-American, um, I, I always hear as a, a persistent trend of the, the media censorship that, that China, China puts um, as far as the messages that uh, the citizens are able to communicate to the, to the external world. And what I guess I'm a little, I get a little confused when I'm able to hear kind of these relevant uh, forward-thinking messages um, out from inside of China. And I'm wondering how the, the Chinese censorship colors the lens that we see from, from the artist and is he available to basically honestly uh, express himself uh, in the way that he wants to or is any of this kind of painted in any sort of color? Um, and if it's not, is this a message that China is trying to portray to the external world? I know there's a lot in there, but okay. sorry. Hmm? You want to take that? No, I don't think that... Uh... Huawei has been fabricated by the CCP. So in other words, um, <clears throat> I think his voice is authentic and, uh, uh, and whenever it becomes too, um, too audible, then, then it is censored, of course. His blog was closed out. Yeah, I mean, it was closed, I don't know, 35 times or so. But where, 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 is, does, where does it stand right now? No idea. It, it always moves on somehow, but it's, uh, I mean, for me, it's impossible to follow. Right. Okay. I need a little more light. I'm having a hard time uh, seeing. Right here. Yeah. Uh, I wonder if you might talk about the art of the masses, music and film. Um, and it's very interesting. In the last year, I used to be involved in the American film industry. In the last year, China has 
over doubled its allowance of American films into the Chinese market. It's still like pulling teeth to get films through the censorship process. But there are more movie screens opening up in China than any other place in the world right now. So I wonder how this medium, this art medium, affects what you're talking about. You mean Chinese production? Both. This kind of soft power? Uh, And and American... uh, Right now, we've doubled the amount of American movies that can get Mm -hmm. into China, foreign movies that can get into China. And again, it's not always easy to do that. But as you find in the world, the art of the masses, particularly under the age of 40, is music and film. Mm. And uh, if you see anything positive happening in that arena that would affect the kinds of things that you're talking about today. Then maybe the two empires have something to say to each other after all. Well, if I were to comment, <laughs> I would say I wish them luck in preventing some American movies from going to China. But I go to see movies occasionally because occasionally they're good movies, but then you're treated for quite a long time to these previews. <laughs> of movies that I don't go to see because they're so appallingly stupid, violent, brutal, ignorant, disgusting. <laughs> But I way way makes documentaries. Am I not right in thinking this? Yeah. Dan, Dan's the former head of the uh, Motion Picture Association. Well, the number of times I was over in China, they told me. Chinese film producers told me one of the reasons they didn't allow a lot of American movies in was not because of traditional censorship. It was because the theme of so many of our movies was the little guy taking on the system. The system might be the family, it might be the business, or it might be the government. And so I'm just curious. I know there's a lot of bad movies out there. But I'm I'm talking about more generally music and art is the music and and film is the culture and art (coughs) of younger people worldwide. So I just wanted to get your comments on that. That's that's a very good point. They do have a lot of access also through the internet, which in a way also obviates some of the efforts to control. There's no doubt that there is effort to control the inflow. But Today, if you are living in Shanghai or in Chongqing and so forth, and if you are from a middle-class family, the chances are that, first of all, at some point in your life, you may be studying abroad. Secondly, much of your family travels abroad. The numbers now are in the millions. And thirdly, you can get a lot of sort of sense of American films through mm-hmm. the Internet. Yeah. And you know this uh, little guy taking on the system? Yeah. That's not just in films. I was teaching um, in Hong Kong at, uh, at a certain point, and there were lots of students from the PRC. I was teaching Aristotle. And as I'm teaching the poetics, I'm, I'm asking uh, the students, uh, you know, what do you think, etc. He says, no, this is not very good because he's, uh, Aristotle is all for uh, upper-level uh, aristocratic people. And I, uh, I think modern theories would be much better because they really talk about uh, common people. So that has, had nothing to do with films. That had to do with just any kind of theoretical uh, artistic expression. So it seems to me that that's bigger. And one other thing is that there is one film uh, industry that was very popular internationally in China, even during the so-called totalitarian era. I know this from personal experience, and that is what it is now wrongly called Bollywood. That is to say Bombay Talkies. That was a real international... Uh, movement that was in China even before it opened up, long before, in the 60s. 
I could give you an in indirect answer very briefly. I mean, also sure. I know that there are many questions. <clears throat> because when, when I first came to China and, and, and started to, to meet artists, I mean, I, I discovered uh, swiftly that uh, many of the artists who became famous, like in the last decade, were not connected at all to uh, what was going on locally. They had no audience. It was not given to them, I mean, through galleries or art institutions or whatever. So there was no medium. I mean, not, of course, not even a mass medium, but there was no medium at all. I mean, there was not, also not with Solzhenitsyn, with literature. I mean, there was no, no public for this kind of, of production. While other artists in China realized that producing for a Western market uh, uh, creates a danger. And they started to look consciously for an audience and build their own audience and function to a degree like institutions or were impersonating institutions. I mean, the way Ai Weiwei did, for example. And, you, and, and getting back to what Big said a minute ago about who his audiences are in China, do you, I mean, did that sound like what yeah, you're familiar with? Yeah, sure. That he has a significant audience in China. It's not like he just... He is also much resented by colleagues. <laughs> you mean they're, they're envious? They're envious? Sure. By my Chinese teacher at Columbia. I'm a Chinese continuing student for the last seven years. And when I said I was going to Washington to talk on Ai Weiwei, she gave me a little harangue. <laughs> Thank you, Dan Glickman. I now have enough light. I can see who asked the question. All right, now, uh, hands in the back of the room, right here. Yes, in the back. Hi, I was just wondering, how do you think art has, social art has been effective in helping prisoners of conscience? How like is social them? art? Can you say it again a little bit more I'm just, slowly? How social art has been effective in helping prisoners of conscience? Prisoners of conscience. Who wants to? Who, who are prisoners of conscience? Uh, can you a, be a little more expansive on just that question? Just like for uh, people who are in prison for, you know, their political views or like in Iran, if you speak up, you know, you're... Are you thinking of a particular country or... Anywhere. I mean, how, how art has helped those people. How art is effective in helping well, prisoners. Like Pussy Riot, for instance, right now is... Well, artists, <laughs> artists have taken public stands on these issues in a variety of ways, ranging from you know, charity, support of children, opposition to repression, to appeal for a special release of political prisoners. I mean, that's something that many artists do. Now, whether that has a lot of political impact or not, it's hard to judge. It depends probably more on how much support they have in the West than in the particular countries that are the target of such pressure. But still, it's a symbolic act in which the artists convey their sense of unity with those who are one way or another oppressed. And to, to tie back this question back also to the, to the case of Ai Weiwei, because to answer this generally is impossible, I think. Um, I mean, he, he could also be called a prisoner of conscience, probably, I mean, when he was Himself. arrested and yeah. <coughs> at, at, at Beijing airport and then... Uh, and, and this was quite mysterious. I mean, on the one hand, you had this kind of mobilization, global mobilization, also with many artists sharing in, right? And then he was, uh, was released. And again, I mean, you don't know exactly what, what happened and why they let him free at, at a certain point. But I think it, is, it cannot be contested that it was very important to, to come up and, uh, uh, and voice uh, a protest 
It's not, in my view, uh, there is no direct line, as I said before, between art and social change. It seems to me that when the artist uh, uh, joins to say, release the uh, prisoners of conscience, etc., the artist is a concerned citizen and with prominence because the, uh, he or she is an internationally recognized artist. It seems to me what it really does, and this is where I was talking about the, uh, Milena mentioned the humanities, is it changes minds so that in the long run, I mean, the, the line from art to policy, as you were saying, like the N and the R trains in New York, never or rarely, right? Mm. So to an extent, in New York, there would be a huge howl of laughter. But at any rate, the line between, between art and policy is not direct. But in fact, the slow, mole-like work of this kind of art is that, uh, that an entire polity changes slowly. Mm. And it seems to me that's really where the long run in the short run, when the artist signs letters or joins with other artists, concerned artists, it so happens that these people are prominent because they're artists. In the short run, it's certainly effective in this way. But Amnesty International works not only because artists speak up, public awareness is raised by them. In the long run, art is one of the most effective things mm -hmm. that change minds. Mm -hmm. And there, Ai Weiwei is very important. Did you say slow-mo a minute ago? I didn't say slow-mo, but I will say slow-mo. <laughs> slow-mo, absolutely. I just wanted to make sure I understood. We've got all sorts of hands here. I have the mic at the moment, so I'll pass it down. I wanted to, I was struck by something as you're all discussing uh, his status in China and his current condition and his past condition and the fact that it's always very fluid. I'm very struck by the fact that it reminds me awfully a lot of the Socratic gadfly and the whole idea when Socrates was defending himself and said, you should let me live in Athens. I'm sorry, I missed an important The Socratic point. fly, the gadfly. Hmm. He said, don't kill me to the Athenians because I need to be the fly that will be constantly bothering the state. And Ai Weiwei has managed very skillfully to create for himself that position in China, which in a sense attests to the democratization of China because China allows him to speak, then when he becomes too vocal, they sort of put the lead a little bit, but he goes on. And in some ways, in a very pragmatic way, there is a mutually beneficial relationship. He gets huge international recognition and China looks more democratic. <laughs> so you're saying he, he's enabling the, the government? Well, it's a very interesting uh, dialectical relationship there. Mm -hmm. I'm not gonna say he's, he's in some ways indirectly enabling them to present a better picture about themselves as a society where multiple ideas can function He's like the Socratic fly that constantly bothers the state and is allowed to stay on. It's a very complex situation, but it's mutually beneficial. I would in part agree with you, except for your choice of words, or of word particularly, one word, democratization. I don't think what's involved here is democratization as part of the bargain. It's liberalization. There is a difference between democratization and liberalization. Liberalization 
can lead to democratization, but it is not in itself democratizing. But are we forgetting that his passport is not being uh, released? I mean, surely he's allowed. It's, it's not that he's being allowed to stay, stay on. He's not being allowed to leave. So there is a difference between the two things. I mean, we can't have him with us because he has no passport. This is a different thing. If it was a democracy, you would. I guess so. But also, I mean, it's not like it's not showing that China is doing one thing or the other. And I think we shouldn't say China. We should say, you know, the government. We should not yeah. identify. I mean, I think it's very wrong to say China, yeah. China, China. Yeah. But so, there we go. Okay, right here. Yes, sir. My understanding is that there's a very active and thriving uh, community of artists, contemporary art, going on in China today. And I'm just wondering the extent to which you think that's true, the extent to which they're interested in political expression, and the extent to which the government might be limiting their, their ability to uh, uh, make political expression and social expression. Thriving community of artists in China. Well, I can say one brief, very personal word about it. Uh, I was in China not, some, not such a long time ago on one of my frequent visits, but at that time with my wife. And my wife is a sculptor. And she wanted to meet Chinese sculptors. Mm. And, uh, and she's a good sculptor who doesn't do just conventional reproductions of things, but actually creative and somewhat abstract. Well, the government, of whose guest I was, in arranged for her visits with some official sculptors, and she found that not to be particularly rewarding. But in the process, she managed to hear of some others, and in, before too long, she was visiting uh, artists, painters, sculptors, and so forth, whom she found to be absolutely uh, innovative, creative, very much avant-garde, probably would have been at home in Paris or New York and so forth. And I dare say probably that is much more widespread than we know. And I suppose, in a very indirect way, but you would know more about this, I way way gives them a little bit of an umbrella without necessarily even trying to do so. But by being so prominent and so established and at the same time so innovative and unorthodox that it legitimates more and more that kind of avant-garde art. But, but, but again, I mean, he's read, I think, in, in, in my view, he's read differently in, in China itself than, uh, than how we read him. So this is, I think, this is also perceived as more a kind of imperial position he takes. And he's monopolizing criticality to a certain degree in the view of many artists. I mean, I don't know so many artists who are indifferent to what's going on in, in China. And now I say in China, not with the government. Uh, and there is a general concern, but I think there's also an awareness that this can easily become a kind of genre, this going against the state or going against Chinese governmentality. And there's a huge mystery also. I mean, what's going on really in the country is to a high degree mysterious. And artists are also engaged in finding out what precisely is going on. And it's it's not easy to find out what's going on. It's something else to, to come up with a, with a statement that can be easily consumed and shipped to the Hirschhorn, for example. Why is it hard, so hard to find out what's going on? 
Because there are many things going on at the same time. I mean, on the one hand, you have, uh, as you described it so well, you have still those encrusted particators and those structures. On the other hand, you have this high mobile uh, middle class and its very particular demands, which challenges the monopoly of the party, even if you don't call it any longer. Um, communist party, things like that. This urbanization, for example, the tension between the, the country and the city, the ecological challenges, the attempt by the government to take hold of the whole country in order to be able to steer it at all. I mean, the con this, thing, this kind of control is not necessarily bad, but maybe also to a degree a necessary condition in order to, to keep it governable, for example. Okay, we have time for maybe two, maybe just one more question. So let's, somebody who has not had a question yet. Okay. Hi. Um, speaking of government and religion and examples of artists from other Can parts of the, the world. Can hold the mic closer to your mouth? Um, I wanted to ask you about Russia and the situation in Russia and the Pussy Riot uh, group. Do you think when you asked about examples from other parts of the world, do you think this band, feminist punk band, could be brought up? as an example of um, fighting the regime using sometimes very controversial and very sensitive topics? And what do you think about their performance? Because they were recently nominated for the Sakharov's Prize for the Kandinsky Award. Um, do you think they deserve such an international art, international art society attention? Do you think they do, before I ask the um, In a way. <laughs> but, mm. What is the question? It's uh, a... Right, what is the question? The, do they the deserve, question the is, do they deserve more international... Can they be... Can they be called uh, artists who are... Yeah, I don't think there's much point trying to decide whether they should be called artists or not. What I think is interesting, however, in that context is that a manifestation of that form of opposition the leadership is appearing and it reflects the fact of something very new in the Russian context and by extension to other non-democratic societies as well. The disappearance in Russia for the first time in all of its political history, one of the element of fear. You can do things which before you would never even dream of doing. And that thought crossed my mind for the first time when I saw in the middle of the Red Square, a young man standing up, holding a placard, and the placard showed prison bars, and behind it, a face of Putin. You know, can you imagine that happening under Stalin? That yes. person would be dead that night under Brezhnev, 20 years in the Gulag. The second thing is, and that's connected yes. with the disappearance of fear, the appearance of irony and ridicule. Notice how much more in the last couple of years Putin has been ridiculed for his appearances, you know, stripped to his waist, riding a horse somewhere in the wilderness, or taming a tiger, which he now confessed was drugged in a zoo, <laughs> <laughs> or lately flying with some cranes showing them how to move to a different part of Russia. I want to say something, I, I, sorry. Irony okay. and ridicule is a very important aspect of political maturity. Mm -hmm. I suspect, although I don't know, there's probably much more of that in China than we know. Mm -hmm. 
But China is also a much more homogeneous society with a kind of hierarchical sense of authority and respect for seniority. So it may not manifest itself quite so dramatically and so quickly. I want to say many things, but I have to leave soon, and I will say one thing. I, I believe that they should be called uh, people who are, and I agree with you, that they, can, that they can do it, although their suffering is a, a proof of something. But I want to say completely boasting now, I don't know them, but I'm very proud that among the people that they cited as having inspired them was my name, Gayatri Spivak. So if you're in their favor, you should be in my favor as well. I wanted to say it in public. That's, that's a very good note to end on. Let's thank these extraordinary panelists. <laughs>